0: The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that operates internationally from bases in the UK and the US. Smarter Grid Solutions' DERMS products, that's Distributed Energy Resource Management Systems, are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets onto the grid and in the market. Its software already manages over 400 megawatts of distributed energy around the world, and it's saved customers over $300 million in grid upgrades. To find out more about how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over your clean energy assets, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange. And if that's a little too long for you, just click the link in the show notes.
1: If it turns out that you're making bespoke carbon fiber race car bodies from captured CO2 for, you know, the ninth generation of Formula E electric racing, that's great. But it's not a particularly large addressable market.
2: Well, that was your point before. That's exactly the example of the skinny but tall profit pool.
1: The skinny but tall. Right. Exactly. In that case, it may not even be that. It it may be so, so skinny that it's essentially a pixel wide
2: Time to spend an hour lounging by the climate tech profit pool with Nat Bullard from Bloomberg. This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners, welcome. So let's start with what we know for sure. I can tell you with great confidence that climate tech, broadly defined, is a growth market and will be for at least the next decade. And within that, I can point to a host of different sectors where I know with absolute conviction that we will see a doubling or more than a doubling, sometimes much more than a doubling of deployments. Batteries, hydrogen, carbon removal, wind and solar, alternative protein, carbon utilization, industrial decarbonization, just to name a few. But while that adage that a rising tide lifts all boats is true, what we see over and over again is that those boats don't get lifted by the same amount. In particular, we generally find in these new technology sectors that certain parts of the value chain from upstream, maybe it's mining or manufacturing to downstream deployment models at certain times are far better places to build a business than others. And to make it more complex, the relative attractiveness of various parts of that value chain shifts over time. So while it might be a great time to be in the manufacturing business at one moment, it may be the worst place to be just a couple of years later. And we've seen this historically in a number of sectors that are now defined as climate tech. And it's a key question for all these new climate tech sectors, and particularly for entrepreneurs who are building businesses within them. Where are the profit pools? When should I specialize versus when should I vertically integrate? Why do investors keep telling me to get out of the commodity business? These are vital questions to ask. And there is no one better to riff on them with than Nat Bullard. Nat is the chief content officer at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Nat and I have known each other, as you'll hear, for well over a decade and have been thinking about the same markets for the same period of time. We also tend to look at the world in a pretty similar way. So... Get your swimsuits on. We're jumping into the climate tech profit pool. Nat Bullard, welcome to The Interchange. It has been uh, surprisingly long for us to get you on here, but I'm glad it finally happened.
1: Thank you. It's the old um, longtime listener, first time caller thing, like they used to say on talk radio. But yeah, it's good to be here, Shale.
2: Yeah. You've been not just a longtime listener to this podcast, but like existing in the same Ecosystem of what the hell is going on in climate and clean energy with me for basically the whole time I've been doing it, I think when did you get started in this stuff
1: So I got started in two thousand and seven yeah um, same b- when right and and in fact, I was piecing this together the other day that I believe the first time we did anything together was in either two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine at an, a conference in uh, the Hyatt on the Embarcadero, but back when like you would go to a solar conference and there would be like 30 people there.
2: Yeah, that was a, that was an APEC thing. Uh, it was like a multi-governmental, some kind of organization that was trying to do clean energy policy. I remember that.
1: And we both walked out of there and we were like, that was interesting. Yeah. yeah, And then and then and then promptly thereafter uh, went off into our our own our own very parallel domains, I think. Right. Like uh, you and I probably have got at least through your your GTM time about the most like for like like impedance matched career path uh, from like little information startup to uh, to bigger information startup to information company to acquisition. Uh, I'm, I'm obviously still with, with, with mine, um, and way bigger than we were back then when, uh, when you and I met, but I guess that's also tracking the sectors that we cover too.
2: It is. And if you need no further indication of us being, uh, of like minds, you know, calling us impedance matched, that alone (laughs) is indication that you're up to the wonkiness level that I'm really aiming for here. Um, all right, well, this is going to be a fun conversation. We're going to talk about shifting profit pools in the world of climate tech and I think we'll do it in sort of two parts. First, we will talk about the some examples of more mature technologies, the you know obvious stuff, wind, solar, batteries. And then we'll talk a little bit about the technologies that don't really have a mature value chain yet, things like hydrogen, direct air capture, carbon removal. Maybe we'll get to carbon accounting even, the topic de jour for lots of folks. But let's start with the basics. We'll jump into the um, kiddie pool, so to speak. Help uh help us get started by defining what profit pools are and you know contextualize like why do they matter? Why is it an interesting thing to talk about in these it, markets? We're in the
1: kiddie pool part of the the profit pool. So you know the profit pool is really a fancy way of saying the money available or the profits rather available throughout a, a value chain, however that value chain might be defined, right? There's a like the locus classicus for this is a, a paper in the Harvard Business Review from the late 90s that looks at the automobile business, and it includes things like obviously manufacturing and new car sales and finance, but also leasing uh, and used car sales uh, alongside the new things. Uh, they also looked, I believe, at the like the U-Haul rental rental business, right, and that the profit pool there includes not just renting out trucks, but also things like month-to-month storage and boxes and tape and insurance and all of the other things that can go along with what we think of as kind of the primary service. And the reason that it's interesting as a lens is that it encourages us to look a bit more holistically at any particular sector. And I think also kind of challenge us to say, what is the sector? And that's why I think this is really worth us talking about in climate tech, because even in the, the relatively established stuff, I think we've got a fair amount of leeway, and we should probably explore that here in thinking, well, what is the sector? Like, What is the sector in which people are making money when they say, I work in solar?
2: It's also, from a practical standpoint, profit pools are a an easy way to think about where in the value chain do you want to play and where in the value chain should you avoid? and. The, the other, I guess, simplified way to describe profit pools is, I'll see if I can do this verbally. It, it's represented in a chart, right? It's an X, Y axis. The X axis is revenue. So how much money is there total revenue to be made in a given portion of the value chain? As you said, in the auto case, maybe it's, I don't know, leasing. But then the Y axis is uh, is margin, profit margin, right? And so the area under the... The block for any given part of the value chain is your profit pool. So you can have some parts of the market that are really big from a revenue standpoint, really low margin, maybe won't have very big profit pools. You can have others that are smaller from a revenue standpoint, much higher margin, could end up having just as big a profit pool on less revenue. Those are nice places to be in the value chain. So it's a, it's a good way to think about like where within this ecosystem is good at the moment and where is not.
1: And they're volumetric too, right? So that's basically the same thing, right? They're volumetric in the sense that like there's an area defined by this, right? So a super tall, skinny part of the profit pool could be very profitable, but not very big, right? But by the same token, a very large, in terms of breadth, part of the profit pool could have very little money in it. Um, the other thing I think that's probably interesting to explore within that is <clears throat> where's the concentration, right? So like, are the things with, you know, are you in a part of the business where it's actually low margin, but not very competitive? That could be compelling in a way. Are you in a Scholes part that's- in yeah, solar.
2: There's exactly. a, the, the absolute perfect example of that, seriously, is this company Shoals, which is, has now IPO'd and is a multi-billion dollar company. And they're like specialists in the, you know- Kind of high margin, not particularly appreciated part of the solar value chain. They make all sorts of little balance of systems equipment, not the big stuff we think about. They don't make panels, they don't make inverters, they don't make racking systems. They make everything else, and they kill it
1: totally. Right? Um, or there can be there could be like the the definitely within the financialized components of these value chains, things that are it, sort of oligopolistic in nature. Right? Like there just aren't going to be thousands of financial institutions writing tax equity right they're not right uh, but there might be thousands of institutions that put panels on your roof for instance in the case of solar
2: yeah all right i think we've hopefully sufficiently defined profit pools as you said the simple version of it just as a heuristic is like where's the money to be made in a given ecosystem so let's let's run through some examples um starting with the the old school stuff wind and solar so walk us through. And the other point that I guess I want to make here is that I think the most interesting thing about profit pools is that they shift over time. So depending on where you are in the market, particularly in supply-demand cycles, it can be really great to be in one part of the ecosystem with great profit pools, and then they can disappear and shift to another part of the ecosystem. So well, let's talk about the historical example of wind, where profit pools emerged or or are, and then how that's changed. So wind is an interesting one
1: because it it has... Um, for the most part, at least in the last 15 years, probably been quite concentrated in terms of the number of companies that are active in it. You know, it's, it's, it's big. It's somewhere on the scale of, uh, you you know, the size of things that are the size of aircraft uh, and obviously getting bigger, probably the weight of like a locomotive that have a lot of precision, but also heavy engineering and relatively, Relatively low unit iteration per given year, right? We don't make millions of turbines; we make like tens of thousands in any given year. Um, they're also got a long life, so they tend to be made by companies that are also relatively long-lived, or if they're specialized, or at least fairly big and have some kind of a backstop, like they've got uh, they, they've got an industrial partner, or uh, they have long-standing finance relationships or things like that. You know, these, these days, I, I think a huge amount of the competition, a lot of where the, the, the profit is, is emerging within that profit pool is actually not in necessarily the manufacturing itself, but in the agreement over time for service. Right? And this is actually very similar to another turbine business, the historic gas turbine business, and also nuclear turbines and, and coal thermal turbines, too, uh, or aero turbines, like the, the sort that GE and Rolls Royce sell to Airbus and Boeing. And that's uh, that's actually really interesting because it's not exactly a lost leader to make and sell you know, the hundreds of tons of metal that are going to be generating power. But a huge amount of the value that you're going to capture in the profit is actually in the ten or twenty year service agreement that goes with it. And that's because those companies are they're relatively scarce. It's pretty specialized. It's also something where the balance sheet of the company doing that work is is helpful as well.
2: It's also one of these places where, like modern day Silicon Valley world would call those contracts ARR right? And like, you, you know, there's all these companies that are spinning up today that are saying, well, we're a hardware software business. We sell the hof- hardware in order to get the long-term contract that that generates our ARR, which is basically exactly what GE and Siemens Gamesa and Vestas and all these guys are doing is they're selling much right. of hardware to win the service contract.
1: No, and, and it's been that way for a very long time. I mean, I, I think probably anything where you have a relatively small number of relatively standardized types of designs for doing something you end up competing probably on on that kind of element of the profit pool you end up competing on the long term service agreement especially because you sell it up front like that's part of it too is you're not constantly renegotiating it i mean i'm just thinking you and i remember when there were attempts to capture the front end of the profit pool so to speak making new turbines when there were there were uh, downwind designs. There were vertical axis turbines. There were two-bladed turbines, and those designs have been completely bid out of the mix. Like there is no one right now that says I've got a wacky, um, you know, I've got a wacky downwind two-blade turbine design that 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 we're going to build fifty thousand of in the next two years.
2: Right. I think something. There's a corollary to what happened in solar. Right solar, the money is not to be made in the servicing contract in the same way that it is with wind i mean sure there's there's operations and maintenance contracts and there's asset management and so on in solar but that's not where the big profit pools are. but what is similar in solar is that in the you know kind of early days of this last wave, most of the excitement was around you know, new technology for module manufacturing, right? That's where we had all the thin film companies spin up and all the cylindra and its ilk and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, a bunch of things happened, one being that the cost of the traditional technology fell faster than was expected because of input costs from polysilicon and scale-up in China and all this kind of stuff. Um, But, you know, it turned out for whatever reason that the supply side, the manufacturing side with modules was hyper-competitive it, the cost structure is a falling knife, and it's it was really really difficult to earn good margins, particularly as a as a new entrant on that side. However, a lot of folks did do really well in a couple of other areas that were downstream of that, right? So, some of the early developers who were just building projects, taking advantage of that falling knife of module prices, did really really well in the like twenty ten to twenty. 12, 2013 timeframe because they would sign PPAs with utilities at 2010 prices in 2010 and then actually have to deliver on them at 2013 prices when they finally had to actually procure. And they could arbitrage that cost differential and and make a killing. So that's one area. And then the second area that I that, you know, some players' new entrants made good money, it was in balance of systems, both in the like physical racking and tracker systems and so on, and also in inverters. So do do we you know do we see something similar happening in the wind context or is it really like in wind you know you want to be you you still want to be Siemens and Vestas and companies like that uh you just want to be making your money on the service
1: yeah. I mean, the thing is the, the Siemens and the Siemens investors companies of 2008 were Siemens investors and <laughs> right. And, and also GE and Gamesa, you know, a handful of those as well as now some Chinese entrants. I mean, I don't think, I don't think that necessarily this would evolve uh, in terms of like where the service contract concept is going to go. Like, I feel like that's probably pretty set. And as far as the, the, the developer stuff goes, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I mean, the, the biggest of the wind developers now are very big. It's, it's quite difficult given the scale involved to be a kind of garage band developer. Um, if for no other reason than you're competing with, with incumbents that do that and only that uh, at significant scale and, and, and in a way that very efficiently recycles capital, both their own capital and investor capital. Whereas in 2008, right, like 2008 and somewhere, it was like real estate developers and a few tech people and the occasional quiet but extremely well positioned former utility executive who are like, I'm just going to go out and begin optioning land in Mesa, Arizona. Right. I'm going to be I'm going to begin doing things in in parts of California, where I know the Williamson act is important. We don't have to go deep into that for everybody, but, but where, where people were, were using, I think, scarce information to become a first mover. And, and, and this, it was a case in a way that did not play out at all on the technology side, where being a first mover literally on the ground was hugely helpful.
2: Yeah. That's one of the, key points right the maturity of the market in some ways dictates where there's an opportunity to to earn outsized returns but it's not the same in every market that you're going to be in in the case of in the case of solar it was you know early days of the market really early days of the market you did want to be manufacturing modules this is how sunpower and first solar came up then as china started scaling it became harder and harder to do that and so that was why you know i think recognizing this both sunpower and first solar for example then bought developers and started integrating downstream because they knew they needed to do that and and,
1: and another thing is that the, you, you, the the companies that took a sort of static position on where that profit pool was going to be invariably ended up in a very challenging position so uh, i'm thinking here of the the remember the sun fab from applied materials right which which was a an all in bet on ultra high prices of polysilicon forever.
2: In other words, they were, for those who are not like steeped in solar history, as you and I unfortunately are, they were betting on what was it, organic they PV? Were, they or were
1: betting on a morphosilicon um, right. thin film PV on a giant glass module that was five point seven square meters, which
2: so was he it was an alternative to traditional crystal and silicon. And the bet was basically that the, the main input cost to crystalline silicon, which was polysilicon, was which was very expensive at the time, hundreds of dollars a kilogram, would remain so. And so their competitive product would be
1: and, better. And the, exactly the competitive product they're like, okay, super expensive input with lots of unit inputs that need to come together. You're buying you're buying polysilicon sometimes a few tons at a time on the spot market. Well, we're going to we're going to avoid that completely because what we're going to do is we are going to build a fully integrated fabrication line that puts in basically gas and glass at one end and ends up with these huge modules and they're really big, but they're perfectly designed for this one application. And it turns out that you know making a bet on a really high input price was not where the profit pool was to be found. That 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 initiative has completely, almost completely vanished. I was actually, for my sins, trying to like look it up the other day and find out something about it, and it's hard to even find a picture of it. Right? It was it was a, it was a really uh, challenging proposition, as it turned out over time, and and it was also challenging that like none of the other things, with with few exceptions, that were meant to be. We're meant to be targeting something very novel in semiconductors, and the solar semiconductor side really worked out. We have pretty much two, I guess, three kinds of solar semiconductors. We have polysilicon. We have
2: a couple of thin films, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, right. Well, I want to come back to this when we talk about hydrogen in particular, because I think there's... Uh, there's a bunch of interesting corollaries there and some differences, but let's, let's cover one kind of bridging. So wind and solar are our most mature things. And I think the sort of takeaway here is that in both cases, the profit pools did shift over time, but they were different from each other in both cases. But in, uh, in both cases, I think particularly in solar, there was an opportunity in the early ish days of the market for new entrants to come in and do really well in a couple of different places in the value chain let's talk about batteries this is our bridge to the the next generation stuff um what does the battery value chain look like from a profit pool perspective so what,
1: what's fascinating about batteries is that this is this is a case in which you had a complete backing on an already existing and very large profit pool of battery manufacturing right for uh, consumer the, electronics for, for consumer electronics right yeah. uh and and something something that that you didn't really have in the early 2000s side of of solar and that you didn't really have in wind necessarily was that this thing already existed like people already bought these things by the I mean I think if you do it on a cell basis we're probably buying them by the billions like in you know even even 20 years ago we were buying that many lithium ion cells you had huge very well established companies doing the manufacturing for the most part Japanese and then Korean um, and you had, I, you know, I, I think a pretty good from what I can call recall supply demand balance within batteries themselves, where the profits started to come, I think, as this thing ramped up and, and as these batteries went from being sort of the batteries for use in, in climate tech applications went from being kind of an offcut of consumer electronic applications to being the prime mover of new capacity is that you ended up with a huge amount of interest uh, and and I think profit capture, at least early on, in the world of the commodities that go into them, right? So you know, you 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 saw, oh, okay, this is where specific, you know, specifics of the chemistry of of lithium-ion storage batteries is something that might be in a, in a near-term uh, shortfall, basically. And so you you have a lot of attention flowing to that, but but you do also eventually have a lot of new entrants, and the new entrants there are very similar to the solar new entrant story, which is they're they're predominantly chinese though we do have we do have some others New
2: entrants on the manufacturing, on the manufacturing side, right? side right yeah so in the world of lithium-ion batteries now the incumbents are largely korean right samsung sti lg chem sk the new big entrants are chinese catl and a bunch of others behind them and then you've got these kind of you know Almost one-off um, American and European players. Tesla on the on the U.S. side, Northvolt maybe on the European side. What is you know is there any reason to think that batteries are going to be fundamentally different from from solar in terms of where they get manufactured? So ultimately? I
1: would I would say theoretically no, but I think it's trade that if anything would make that different, right? That it that it's it's um propositions to buy local uh, for either. For either essentially, reasons of public policy or reasons of public diplomacy, or for just supply chain security that might come in, right? I, I think that that actually might be might be a reason for that to take place. Batteries are, are bigger physically, more heavy, heavier to move. Relatively, there may end up being some kind of shipping-related reason that it's good to keep them local, but but I'm not I'm not really sure how that's going to play out yet. I mean, if it looks like solar on a pure volume game, where well, we all end up we end up buying Chinese modules, except that they may be wafered in one country, turned into cells in another country from a company that is mostly active in China, but headquartered somewhere else. I mean, it, it starts to get a little bit muddy, but I do, I, do, I, I do think we need to watch very carefully to see if those one-offs, as you, as I think you rightly say, end up having durability in a profitable way. Like, or beyond just saying, well, because of this moment in time, this is where we need to be building this, this factory.
2: I think the other thing that's an open question with batteries is the degree to which a single chemistry wins out as it basically has in solar, as you said, there are exceptions, but, you know, for the most part we're it's commoditized crystalline silicon. Uh, whereas in batteries, there's still quite an explosion of different chemistries, whether it be varieties of lithium ion, right? Take quantum scape on the solid state side, sila on the silicon anode side, um, a million different permutations of different chemistries to try to make lithium ion batteries, you know, more energy dense or cheaper or safer or whatever it might be. And then uh, less so for automotive applications, but more for, you know, stationary storage applications, a whole bunch of other chemistries that serve different purposes, you know, long duration batteries and all this kind of stuff. And so there there may be more of a diverse value chain and more opportunity for profit capture in uh, proprietary technology and batteries, or at least that's been my Hypothesis than there has been in solar, but I'm curious what you're taking i think
1: I, you're right to ask that question, and it's one that that i uh, that I sort of ask myself on all the time is how like how fine grained is the demand curve essentially right like in solar, it turns out it's not particularly fine grained right it turns out that, in other like, words,
2: everybody needs the same everybody thing, needs basically.
1: the same thing and the same yeah, like like if you want to change around for a specific application, you actually decide to mount the modules differently rather than necessarily getting different modules. But your you know 16 to 40 to 80 hour storage application is fundamentally different than your you know 40 minutes to four hour application. So I, I think that there it, we are we are correct to still be looking to determine. The question is does, does the falling knife of price mean that things that are sort of technically suboptimal end up being financially optimal over time? A
2: hundred percent. Yes. My my um my going assumption, I'm looking at this from an investment standpoint, right? And we see all these battery technologies. And my my base assumption going into any new conversation with a startup that has some kind of new battery chemistry is if lithium ion can theoretically win in this application, it will. Right, because the scale effects and the amount of investment in R and D that are going to go into lithium ion are just going to be staggering for the next couple of decades. So you have to you have to play at a game lithium ion just cannot play in.
1: And at the same time, the people who are going to finance those at the application level, not necessarily manufacturing, which might be a little bit more risk on or whiz on balance sheet, but the ones who are going to finance that in a, on an asset backed kind of fashion. Are, there aren't that many companies doing it? My earlier point, right? Whoever's going to asset finance that has uh, a, a very sort of coordinated, in effect, thinking, right? They tend to want to finance things that have already been financed. So to that same point, you may you may have somebody who says, "Listen, I've got a you know eight hundred megawatt hour application that we're ready to build with a brand new chemistry that nobody knows, and that's going to be a very it's a very tough sell." into uh, a structured finance market that is very accustomed to saying, well, I've already done 800 deals for one megawatt hour batteries of a chemistry that I know and understand. So I'd, I'd rather just stick with that.
0: The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that specializes in distributed energy resource management systems. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Internationally, Smarter Grid Solutions manages over 400 megawatts of operational clean energy assets. Cirrus Flex, Smarter Grid Solutions' virtual power plant product, optimizes the operating schedules of distributed energy resources, maximizing returns from energy markets and grid flexibility services. Cirrus Flex pulls together mixed distributed energy assets and fleets to the grid and market, delivering on-site and system value to asset owners, operators, aggregators, and traders. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the value-maximizing virtual power plant solutions offered by Sirius Flex, visit info.smartergrid.com solutions.com slash interchange, or just check out the link in the show notes.
2: All right. So, you know, the other thing I guess we haven't talked about in battery land is sort of the downstream thing, because that is where there was a lot of value in solar. And, And I think in the early days of stationary energy storage, there was a broad assumption that it would be the same. And so a bunch of new storage developers popped up. Like six, seven years ago. I think it's a somewhat middling success, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, there have been some successes, and now we see some emerging larger players like Fluence would be a good example, or we invested in Powin, which is in that same space, and there's a few others, um, that are like, you know, on the downstream side. They're there, some of them are, you know, they're not making battery cells, but they may integrate a battery pack or they may integrate a battery system or whatever it might be, and then they do. They oversee construction and, uh, and that kind of thing. And there's, you know, there's a market there in batteries that is not, is not there in solar. But well, they provide the full
1: wrap as the saying goes in engineering, right? They, they do everything from, from integration to engineering procurement and construction to the management of those processes to the maintenance over the long time. So yeah, and, and the other question is, is, it a, is storage um, a business or a feature? Right? Like like do we reach a point where, well, no one is going to be building even 10 megawatts of solar without 15 megawatt hours of storage attached to it just because that's what you do? And then it becomes a harder sell to do that incremental standalone application. So that, that's another another bit of profit pool to watch over time. It's, does this does this simply flow into greater integration with with not just the grid, but with specific assets? And if so, Do you need pure place storage development to do that, that piggybacks on a solar developer or a wind developer doing his or her own development?
2: Probably not. Right. Okay. Let's talk about some new stuff. Uh, Let's go into hydrogen. Hydrogen is a fun one. So, you know, there is an existing market for hydrogen, but let's largely ignore it um, and talk about the future state market of hydrogen, assuming that... You know the EU gets what it wants and builds forty gigawatts of electrolyzers over the next decade, and you know hydrogen takes off in all these end markets. Do what do we know or what do we think we know about where the profit pools might lie in this market?
1: Well, the thing that's different from everything we just discussed is that it is uh, it, it is much more physical. Not that electrons don't travel down wires, but they are relatively. I don't want to sound too like you know physical here, but they're dematerialized by comparison, but. The molecular side of of hydrogen the molecular nature of it means that it has to travel in molecular ways. And that I think is what's most interesting to me. Is it going to be a case where you've got pipelines where you have liquid transport in another fashion? Um, if so, you know, pipelines as networks are tend to be, relatively exclusive. Like, I don't know that you would go and build a new dedicated pipeline to compete with somebody else's pipeline and say that that's your business, right? We have a relatively small number of relatively large pipes for moving things around. If you're going to move into the the rest of the transport, the rest of the transport market there, you know, if, if it's in, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy transport to move it around, is that a trucking game or is the value in building the pressure vessels to carry it? Right. Or is the value in underwriting the risk on that? So like it, it, it gets it gets back into adjacencies with other really big existing industries, which is partly why there's so much interest. Right. Well, when people say, hmm, it travels by pipe, right? It tends to follow like relatively exclusive networks. So that sounds an awful lot like what we know from the world of oil and gas, right? Is it something that integrates into a bunch of other industrial processes at one end or the other? Well, that sounds an awful lot like petrochemicals, right? Uh, And in which case, is there going to be a new entrant? Like, Would somebody come along and say, I'm going to go compete with Saudi basic industries and build a de novo up from nothing trillion you know half a trillion dollars worth of hydrogen infrastructure don't know. Um, but then again, I'm very curious to see how that hydrogen is made and that's where you get into green, blue, brown hydrogen. Let's do green for instance and let's take the kind of classic case, which is a wind or solar powered electrolyzer. Well, that is probably you know relatively diffuse by comparison to say cracking right or, or doing some kind of steam reformation process to to get to get the, the hydrogen. And then like, where's the, you know, is the profit gonna be in the collection of that? I think we can probably say that the, given the competition we've seen and the cost of electrolyzers themselves, it's probably not going to be in those really high unit, very uh, margin competitive manufacturing sides of the business. But in yeah some aspect of collecting, f- focusing, filtering, if you will, to get to get things to market, and then again, probably at the other end, distributing it to market. Right. Um, and and it's like the kind of like a hybrid of the way that the way that oil and gas or the way that uh electricity transmission and distribution work, right? And like I just I have a hard time seeing us building networks that look they may be themselves new, but they don't look different on a sort of network fundamentals basis than things that already exist.
2: Yeah, I think that I think that's right in the sense that. You should think of the corollary market to hydrogen as being natural gas, probably more than it is, I don't know, solar batteries or whatever the previous clean technology was. That's the kind of ecosystem that we are building here. Now, one distinction, of course, being how it's produced, which you alluded to, right? We are not drilling for hydrogen. Um, particularly if we're in a green hydrogen context. I mean, if we're in a blue or turquoise or pick your other color hydrogen context, then maybe we will drill for natural gas and turn that natural gas into hydrogen. But let's set that aside. The interesting thing, I've been guilty of drawing too strong a parallel, I think, between the world of electrolysis, the, the technology that makes green hydrogen, and historical analogs to solar PV or lithium ion batteries and saying like, Look, the, at the end of the day, we haven't seen, and I do think this is true, we have not seen China start building electrolyzer gigafactories really yet, um, yet. And, but undeniably we will. There's, I'd be blown away if we don't. And when we do, um, it seems likely they're going to drive the cost of electrolyzers down substantially and it's going to be difficult to compete with that. Uh, that said... You know, when you look at the unit economics of green hydrogen, at the end of the day, you can drive electrolyzer capex down a lot. But at the end of the day, the input cost of electricity and the conversion efficiency um, end up dictating your economics almost more than anything else. And so there may be some distinction there, wherein if you have much higher round trip efficiency on your electrolyzer... And then that's proprietary. Maybe you've got a shot to win, even in a world where China starts making electrolyzers that's, at that's scale. That's
1: totally that's totally right. Or if you if you have positioned yourself to basically get, you know, the 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 off cut of the world's like zero uh, marginal cost electricity. Yes, the right?
2: downstream mm. like opportunity to develop electrolyzer projects and with know how to figure out how to actually take advantage of cheap or zero or negative priced power. Is huge, and it'll be huge. But there, again, the real question is like, how durable is that? That is not infrastructure. That is not
1: the same thing as saying, well, <clears throat> we've gone on a bit and built like a million tons of storage capacity. That's putting yourselves at that's putting yourselves much more in a kind of like trading and, and markets paradigm to keep up with, which can be really good. But again, like who's gonna like who captures that profit pool? It might be somebody with a background in trading and marketing rather than a back rather than somebody with a background in project development or in in epc and engineering right i mean it could it could be somebody very very different and that is certainly plays that we've seen people say is like, listen as you get greater liquidity uh in these markets and you have these moments of negative you know negative pricing well uh the solution to that is to either take free electricity or pay a very very meager amount for it uh, and solve everybody's problem basically but you know that that's going to be that's going to be super multivariate, right? And the people that get into that game are probably different uh, than people who establish themselves with a kind of time arbitrage, the way that early development in in renewables went.
2: All right, so to finish off hydrogen then, gu- gun to your head, a decade from now, where in the value chain will the profit pool
1: be greatest? It's it's probably in, I mean, gun to my head, I'm going to have to say somewhere in, somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the parts where you have you tend to be non-rival and relatively exclusive in terms of what you're doing, right? Um, you're the pipeline. Yeah, company. you're 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 the pipeline. You're the 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 industrial supplier, or you've you've gone to develop specific specific parts of that value chain that are new, right? The ones that are people are like, mm, it's too risky for me as a big integrated oil and gas company, but I'll deal with you because I you know I'm familiar enough with your business in the past and how that's gone.
2: All right. On from hydrogen then to, let's talk about direct air capture.
1: This is fun. This is the one that we were looking forward to, right? Because we were scratching our heads
2: over this. Yeah, well, this whole thing's been building up to this one. Where, okay, direct air capture, for anybody who doesn't know, we've talked about it before on this show, but it is uh, the process of removing CO2 from the atmosphere, not point source capture, so not attaching carbon capture to a flue gas stack, uh, but literally sucking it out of the atmosphere. And there is a burgeoning market Around it, there's a ton of early stage activity. There's sort of three companies that are at uh, a larger scale. There's demand for it, largely from corporates at this point. But you know, it, there's a market emerging here, and I think a big open question is going to be where, where, if anywhere, is there profit right. in this market in the long term?
1: And this is the one where, when I was taking my own notes, <clears throat> I realized I had to kind of dis for the first time in the, the set of things we've discussed. I had to disaggregate. Uh, profit and value, like like this, is hugely valuable if it works from a climate perspective. But it's all cost, right? It's it's entirely cost. Yeah, it is definitionally a cost. Like there's, you know, we, we we don't have a way in which this is somehow energy positive. I mean, if that happens, if there's something that both gives us energy and removes carbon dioxide, I, I think that all classical physics has to just like go out the window, right? so that that in and of itself is something that i I candidly like wrestle with in thinking about this is that we're just no matter how much efficiency we add, no matter how much cost we squeeze out of it, it is still a cost that without an im an imposition of that cost at a very high and very robust level, is hard to square away like maybe maybe if we had a world in which Direct air capture ended up at twenty dollars a ton per, for for CO two. That would change the environment completely, but we're not there. Uh, it's quite a ways off.
2: No, and to be clear, we're in the hundreds of dollars a ton today. And then most most direct air capture companies, you know, they they have a roadmap to one hundred dollars a ton. If they want to be really aggressive, they have a roadmap to fifty. But it's in the future.
1: And then, but even then, when we get to that point. Like, what do you do? You have you have something you then have to one way or another dispose of, right? Or at least solve for, right? I remember a long time ago uh, when I first saw one of these applications asking my colleague who was on our CCS team, I was like, isn't this just making baking soda? And he said, yes. And I was like, well, how much industrial baking soda demand is there? He's like, not enough, like not enough for what this does, right? So you, you're left with yet another, you're left with another thing that you have to account for.
2: Right. So there's the so this is where i think there's some interesting questions around the future profit pools of direct air capture so there's there's the upstream the upstream upstream is making equipment or that goes into a direct air capture machine then there's the making the direct air capture machine itself then there's going to be developing direct air capture projects right and there's some early activity there that's interesting so there's um oxy the 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 um, oil company has a partnership with, uh, a private equity firm, this venture called, I think it's 1.5 ventures, something like that, that is developing direct air capture projects, um, using carbon engineering's technology. So there's a development aspect. And then as sort of a part of that, there's going to be a, what do you do with the CO2 that is captured, which is either sequestering underground or potentially selling to someone who has some end use for that CO2, which is, you know, carbon utilization is a whole other emerging ecosystem.
1: Right. And that's where that's where it becomes a development game is that you probably want proximity to demand. You know, you want proximity to demand. I, 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 and, and thus, I'm sort of wrong on how it works. The supply is, you know, atmospheric. I'm sure there are some places that are better than others in which to in which to actually do the the extraction, the capture. But you may want to be closer to a demand center if, if part of your your business proposition, part of the profit is going to come from selling into a, a demand source. the The other is the other things to ask are like um, engineering. Like if it's heavy engineering, that's another naturally oligopolistic business that 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 trends towards well established companies that have experience in exactly exactly that sort of thing, even if it's in an inverse capacity. Building stuff and managing gases, right? Like <laughs> there's definitely companies that do that. And then then also, like, is there a is there a manufacturing element or is it more like a licensing element given size and scale and also the volumes that are going to be there? So it feels to me like development business being savvy to negotiate your your offtake in the sense that there are there are two kinds of offtake. One is if you can manage to do something on the molecular side, there's that. But also the offtake is like how good how good are you at selling somebody on the price at which you're going to uh, extract carbon dioxide or captured from the atmosphere?
2: That one feels to me like inevitably, if there is a scaled market for carbon removal, uh, at, you know, sort of corporate voluntary carbon removal, or maybe it's legislated into action, whatever it might be. But if if all people are paying for is for carbon to be removed and sequestered, then. It becomes commoditized almost certainly, right? You, it really, it's a true commodity, except with the with the exception of the permanence. it you, has, do you care about right. permanence, I mean, un-
1: unlike probably anything else, the supply curve is pretty much infinite.
2: <laughs> Yes, certainly there is endless, (laughs) endless, unfortunately, sadly. In fact,
1: if anything, you may actually have an increasing supply pool for for most of your project's lifetime. So we don't need to worry about that. Like the scarcity would like if that comes up as an issue, that would be a problem we as a society would be unbelievably fortunate to have achieved. If they're like, wow, we can't do this because we've gotten down to 250 ppm already.
2: We need that CO2 (laughs) still in the atmosphere. Yeah, that's right. Supply is not a problem um and i think demand we'll see how demand shapes up here to me i think the carbon utilization stuff might be the most interesting area because you know if you can develop like there's carbon to value in a bunch of different areas right you know there's a lot of activity in cement and concrete there's some stuff in chemicals um there's you know you can make uh solid carbon a bunch of stuff using that and all those things you know they will ultimately um take advantage of the fact that the price of captured CO2 is going to fall inevitably as these direct air capture or point source capture companies get better and start scaling and so you know you're on the other you're on the downstream side of a market that that um should see falling prices the question is at what point do the unit economics actually make sense like what does your input cost of CO2 need to be for you to produce whatever the output thing is at cheaper than the incumbent way to produce that out.
1: Right, if you if you if it turns out that you're making, you know, you're making bespoke carbon fiber race car bodies from captured CO2 for, you know, the ninth generation of Formula E electric racing. That's great, but it's not a particularly large addressable market.
2: Well, that was your point before. That's exactly <laughs> the example of the skinny but tall. The skinny
1: but tall, right? Problem. Exactly. in that case it may not even be that it, it may be so so skinny that it's essentially a pixel wide. Uh, but yeah, but, but that's, but that's also like, those are, those are worth pursuing, but they have to be fairly exclusive, right? They ha- like, there's no way that you could have those unless they're very geographically constrained to be kind of durable across an entire profit pool, across a global profit pool, certainly.
2: Okay. Last one, we're moving on from direct air capture, uh, and we'll talk about everybody's other favorite topic at the moment, carbon accounting, carbon measurement, carbon reporting. Um, this is different from all these others. This is the only, this is the first non physical ecosystem that we were going to talk about. This is a software play for the most part, with the exception of maybe some like methane monitoring, you know, satellite technology and sensors and things like that. Um, but, but it's a different kind of a ecosystem. How do you think about profit pools in that context? So I, I'm totally fascinated by this and,
1: and, uh, probably for background, it's worth mentioning that I I've done over the years, a lot of work with, uh, the task force on climate related financial disclosures, uh, as well as <clears throat> last year with the commodities futures trading commission, which has, which, which did a, a white paper essentially on what, what, uh, you know, climate risk looks like in the, in the U S economy and how, you know, measurement verifications and standards are an important part of that. I also happen to work at Bloomberg, right. Like, Which is, which is very much about the, the world and the universe of standardizing information uh, for the purposes of making it robust, replicable, transferable between parties. And so yeah, this this is the one that is not physical at all, um, which I think probably gives gives a, a couple of impressions. One, it has pure software economics, right? It has zero marginal cost, right? Um it is something that can be that can be almost essentially infinitely levered on a unit basis uh, to meet markets. Will it have a winner-take-all dynamic? And I think that's what's going to be really, really worth watching on the accounting side of things. We have in regular accounting, in financial accounting, we have settled upon basically two things, generally accepted accounting procedures, GAAP, and then IFRS, which is a European standard. And when you don't use one of those, you have to tell people, right? When you decide to use community-adjusted EBITDA, in the case of WeWork, (laughs) you you have to state that it is not considered generally accepted accounting procedures. And certainly markets have a preference for a smaller number of standards, just as a general rule, because otherwise there is no comparability. Like You will fundamentally limit your total addressable market by being like, well, I'm the best standard, but I, I work best for this application. Right. There is probably a Pareto optimality here that trends towards something that is probably not the greatest, but it's the one that everybody uses. Um, so I, I, I think that like, one thing we need to do is probably see a shakeout. It's very healthy and it's exciting really to watch many, many different companies entering in because we need a we need a diversity of views and, and opinions, essentially, and theses on what, where, when, how to measure, how to convey that to people, uh you know who to convey it to first all of those things need to happen and need to flourish but when they become successful they will have to plug into another massive apparatus for measuring and verifying which is the world of accountancy right i mean there is there is a there's a place in the world where carbon accounting is simply uh, a line item on your budget from the big four accounting companies right Uh, there's a world in which there's one, you know, there's a winner take all. And like, we are the carbon accounting standard and you can either use us or people won't pay attention to you.
2: In the financial accounting world though, right? You, as you, as you mentioned, we have settled on standards and, and right. So gap is gap and everybody knows gap accounting, but there are multiple financial accounting and reporting platforms, software platforms, right? So we may end up somewhere similar in carbon world where maybe we all settle on TCFD and that's it, right? But there are multiple different platforms.
1: But it's processed through, right? Like, But you don't go to TCFD as the platform. That's right. Right. So there's, right. The, there's the platform play and the, the sort of additive services play, right? Like, are you going to go to a brand new firm you never work with in order to do your carbon accounting? Or because you've had a decades-long relationship with KPMG, are you gonna do that? Or are you going to, you know, double audit your books, which wouldn't be uncommon? Are you going to have uh, one one company use the same to to check, to essentially measure and check what the other company is doing using the same protocols, right? Like you, you you may find you may find that as well.
2: Yeah, the other thing that I think is going to be interesting in this this world is there's a few related tasks that any given company that wants to do something on this issue or needs to do something on this issue has to do. And it's not clear to me yet whether they're going to all fall into one platform or into multiple platforms. So you have to account for what what are my scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. You have to report upon those emissions. You have to talk about climate risk, both physical climate risk, which is a whole different thing, and, uh, and transition risk Um, And then you also have to, you know, increasingly you have to set science-based targets. You have to set a plan to reduce your emissions or, and then perhaps, I guess, as a fifth category, um, offset your remaining emissions. So that could be a single full stack platform. And I think there's a couple of companies that that's their vision. It's like, we will be the, everything from accounting through offsetting and everything in between, that's what we intend to do. And what's, what's useful about that
1: stack is that you don't pay for TCFD you don't pay for science based targets you pay you might pay for work around achieving your science based target right but but like like the science based targets initiative exists you know you know as a dot org right uh, and tcfd as well right like and and that's something that is that is really useful it's a public good that you can get you can get those things coalesce into their own best practices and then you can you can platform them together i i do i do think that it would be a sign of success if they're platformed, right? If these are, if there are essentially clearing houses for this information to flow through. Um, but, but that necessarily means that there's not likely to be hundreds of different companies doing everything. But you know, we should also look at what what are, you, what are you measuring? I think like measuring your CO2 footprint yeah, from a building in midtown Manhattan is not terribly difficult relatively speaking. Measuring like the potential impact from a different kind of tilling of your land in Mato Grosso in Brazil is a little bit more complicated. Or
2: like changing your supply chain practices so that you start sourcing things that are slightly nearer so that the emissions associated with sourcing those things goes down,
1: right? Right. right. We're looking at like, if it turns out that like the biggest thing that you need to measure is the the fuel efficiency of the marine diesels that that take your stuff from yantian in southern china to rotterdam right and like something that may not be in your control at all but you absolutely need to know about and maybe if you maybe it reaches a scale where it does become in your control you are a large enough company you can say i'd rather you you know not do this particular part of your trip or use this slightly different fuel because this is the thing that's going to make it work for us
2: this has been Walmart's sort of pioneering thing through the Project Gigaton initiative. Is leaning on all their suppliers. Now you see some other big companies doing it too.
1: Yeah, but in a way, in a way that only they could really, because because of that, right? And like, if Walmart, if Walmart had been disaggregated into uh, you know tens of thousands of separate little stores, it would have never been able to have that kind of sway.
2: Right. Hoof. All right. Well, I think we did it. I think so. We covered wind, solar, batteries, hydrogen. Direct air capture and carbon accounting. So we like hit all the we hit all the high marks, but uh, but we'll do it again and then cover the next six things, I guess, on the next one. Uh, but first, Nat, thank you so much for finally coming on.
1: Thanks, Shail. It was a real treat.
2: Nat Bullard is the chief content officer at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Nat and I, as you could tell, uh, think in very similar ways about many similar markets. So It was really fun to have him on. Uh, so, what did you think about the episode? Give us a rating to let us know how we're doing. Uh, Tweet at us at at interchange show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. Do you know someone who also likes to nerd out on climate tech profit pools? Probably not. But just in case you do, send the episode to that single lone unlucky person. Uh, The Interchange is produced by PostScript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. And I'm Shale Khan. This is The Interchange.